1: Hi, this is Cammie. Sanford Livingston is our featured guest this week on Money Tales. Sanford is from Trenton, New Jersey. A question he often heard from his mom while growing up was What are you going to study? Because you got to get a job. And as Sanford explains where he came from, job stood for just over broke, J O B. As a result of talking money with his college roommate, who came from a very affluent family, Sanford realized his own money orientation was focused on working and surviving rather than on living and thriving. This shift in perspective had a profound impact on Sanford and the way he approached his life going forward. He's redefined wealth and is now working on passing that along to the rising generation of his family. Today, Sanford is the CEO of NorCal Financial Development Corporation. He is responsible for establishing relationships with lenders, fintech innovation experts, And political and community leaders.
2: Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key money tales conversation topics Sanford covers. First, why talking about money with your friends can be life altering. Second, why it's important to choose your words wisely, especially in money conversations. And three, how wealth is really life. After the interview, Cammie and I leave you with some tips for starting money conversations. Now, on to our discussion with Sanford Livingston.
1: Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cammie, and I'm here with my co-host, Sandy. How are you doing, Sandy?
2: I'm great. How are you? I'm doing really great. Have you had any interesting money conversations of late? I'm always having interesting money conversations.
1: I love that about you.
2: (laughs) It's fun to have them on Money Tales, and it's great to have them in my day-to-day life as a wealth manager, in addition to my own personal life, On the work side, I've been working with some of our colleagues getting ready for a meeting. And we're meeting with two generations of a family that we've worked with for a long time. This is the first family meeting where we're having the different generations together in the same place. It's been really fun, exciting and special to prepare for it. We've talked with the parents and then each of the adult children to get everybody prepped and ready to go. And a lot of the conversation in the meeting is going to be around expectations. We're going to talk about what the adult children and their children should expect, what they shouldn't expect, and what's expected of them. This is going to be important because this particular family owns different types of assets together. Having those expectations out on the table, I think is going to help everyone really understand and hopefully also connect around these resources in a different way. What type of expectations? Everything. There's an asset that is owned by all members of the family. It happens to be a home. So- Who's going to make decisions about when the home needs to be maintained or redecorated? How are we going to make decisions about who gets to use the home and when? There's a lot of decisions that come into play when families own assets together. And that's just one level of expectations we're going to be talking about next week.
1: It makes me think of conversations we've had on Money Tales where these conversations didn't happen and then what happened as a result, maybe when someone passed, you have to let us know how it goes. I promise to do that. Today, we welcome Sanford Livingston on Money Tales. It's great to have you, Sanford. Thank you. Please start us off by providing a brief introduction, sharing two or three pivotal moments that really make you who you are today.
3: Again, my name is Sanford Livingston. I hail from Trenton, New Jersey. I was born in the early 60s. had a great time growing up in a wonderful neighborhood. We knew all of our neighbors. I had this quest for wanting to do really well in school. So at an early age, I intended to look for private schools and look at these wonderful little pamphlets that they had, kids under the tree, reading books and playing soccer and that kind of stuff. I said, hey, I want to do that. By the time I got to ninth grade, I ended up applying for a program called the Better Chance Program. I ended up going from Trenton, New Jersey to Amherst, Massachusetts to go to high school. Very big change from basically an all-African American community in Trenton to a predominantly white community in Amherst that open arms accepted me, and I learned a great deal there. thought about going to Amherst College, but I said, no, I've been here a little too long. I've been here three years, and I ended up going to a school called Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut met some great folks there, had a great time. I always wanted to take my family. I wrote my family letters along the way. And we always talked about, Sanford, you go out there, you make a way for us and we'll all come join you. So I ended up doing that, meeting some great folks at Wesleyan, my roommate, lived in California. I ended up moving out to California after a year or so after graduation. I'm in Oakland, California now, having a great time, went to grad school out here it's just been a great journey.
1: We're glad to have you. Sandy and I are both in Northern California, as you know. When you were back in Trenton, New Jersey, what was money like in your home?
3: Well, money conversations were not necessarily happening, but you always knew that folks were looking for a job, so to speak, a J-O-B. And back in those days, we called it just over broke. So you need a job. It's so funny. It was a Black neighborhood, but most of the times, when money came up, I was looking at my white brethren because that's where the money went. So I paid the rent, you had to pay the bills, you had to go downtown to pay the light bill. That's when you ran into other folks. It was always agonizing when my mom had to forego her lunch or whatever to make sure that we had money for food for dinner time. So I knew that it was important to have money. We were always in the survival mode. That's some of the things I learned differently as I matured is that when you're in survival mode, you think about money as I got to be able to go to school or I got to be able to pay the bills. I got to be able to pay the rent. I got to be able to have food. But there is a time in my life now where I'm not necessarily worried about those things. Your mind takes a whole different journey when you can think about love and care and sharing and those kinds of things. And that's getting off that break-even point of survival to build
2: on that, your earlier experiences, then you learn about this better chance program in high school and you leave your family environment. What was that
3: like? It was very tough. I didn't know what to expect. I had confidence. I knew I was okay academically, but when you're up against kids and your friends in classes where they didn't seem to have those struggles, it made me yearn to be back home. And my mom always said, Hey, You can't deal with it. You can always come back home. You always got a safe place. But knowing I had that safe place, I said, let me just give it all I got. And thank God those folks in Amherst opened their arms for me and helped me to blossom like I had never thought I could.
1: How'd they do that?
3: I played sports and whenever we had issues with other teammates, they became my friends. And it was kind of funny. My mom never came to Amherst until I graduated. So I had a host family that would come to my games and cheer for me. And I was open to this incredible world I couldn't imagine and couldn't dream of. Some people look at the ABC as a better chance for education. I think it's a better chance for experiences and opening up life's purpose and what dreams are really made of. So I had a great time. Were you talking about money at that point in your life? We were all talking about money. Matter of fact, my mom kept trying to find out, what are you going to study? Because you (laughs) got to get a job. Remember that job? You're up there for a reason. Get the J-O-B, it just over broke. So we were always talking about money. I worked all the time. There was a truck that used to come by in our neighborhood that would pick us up. New Jersey is the Garden state. So the truck would pick you up and take you to a farm. And I would pick blueberries or pick strawberries or tomatoes or whatever to bring home money. And it wasn't a lot. Some of those kids could make like 30, 40 bucks. I could make like 12, 13 bucks. I wasn't born on a farm, but it was that work ethic that we had. And I always associated money with labor. Interesting. Yeah. And what happened in my transition through Amherst and Wesleyan is that I began to associate wealth and money with knowledge. And I began to think differently. And I use that to this very day in the job that I have now. It's my ideas and my fascination with innovation and thinking outside the box that is parallel with the building of wealth. How did you make that leap? And when did you make that leap? I went to Wesleyan and I looked for jobs that was associated with the folks that went to school there. And there was a guy who was the president of New Jersey National Bank in Trenton, New Jersey, that I said, hey, he's a CEO. I'm from Trenton. He went to Wesleyan. I got to get a job. So I got my tie on, went down there, got my handbook and everything. Went to go see this guy. And he was looking at me like I was crazy. He was like, Man, we don't really have any jobs here. I said, You're the CEO. You run this whole place. There's got to be a job. I don't care if we have a job driving a truck. I'll take it. He said, What? What? You'll drive a truck? I said, I'll drive a truck. He picked the phone up. I ended up for my first job at New Jersey National Bank. I delivered pencils and pens and paper and all kinds of other things for the bank as my starter job for supplies. And that was how I got started. I got to meet him. Our friendship blossomed. I ended up working my way into banking, ended up becoming an SVP of a major bank, and it started off driving a truck.
1: It started off without accepting a no. I really appreciated that you didn't take no for an answer. You pushed through that and
3: said, well, what can I do? That's right. He's the CEO. I said, man, you kidding me? You run the place. I had a great time, but that was very interesting. Sam, that was when you were still in college? Yes, it was. My first summer after being a freshman, I came back and I looked him up and I was fortunate enough to get that job.
1: When you left college, you mentioned a year after college, you moved west to pursue your fortunes. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Absolutely. So I had some unfortunate things. So my father had met his untimely demise in a carjacking incident in New Jersey, and it was just terrible. My roommate from school said, Hey, man, you need to get away and do some things. At that time, I was working as a financial analyst in Hartford, Connecticut, but I was always going back and forth to Trenton. But I grabbed my things and I moved west. I was introduced to his family, which was incredible. They were pretty well off. Well off is an understatement, but nevertheless, It had been more than I had ever seen before. And that's when, Sandy, I started to think about that difference between survival versus living, thriving, and enjoying life. There's a couple of things that we were taught coming out of training. Education, health insurance, or even health issues could make or break a family. I found out later that bankruptcies were the issues surrounded by health issues or people who had to use a lot of their savings, they used it for college. And oh my God, me sending my kids to school now, $85,000 a year for some liberal arts schools and stuff like that, it's tough. It can really be draining. But when you get above that level and you have resources that you can do whatever you want It allows you to dream and think of things that are amazing. And I was able to do that. And I was able to understand that. And with this family's help, I even enjoyed some of their vacation homes and stuff like that. Ladies, I'm telling you, I went out to this one place they had, St. Thomas, and I was the only Black guest they ever had in private beaches. I was like, man, this is living. And then when I figured out, you know, not only could I do those things through them, I could begin to do some things on my own and think about life in its totality and not just at survival and eating and sleeping and actually getting out and living. It sounds like this family was really
2: welcoming of you and inviting you in and sharing with you the resources that they had. How did that make you feel as someone who had a very different
3: upbringing? It gave me hope. First of all, I was very thankful and grateful for what had transpired, and also the conversations that we had were so deep and enriching. It's like I'm talking to you about survival, I say, buddy, you don't have to think about eating and rent and car note and all that kind of stuff. I said, what do you think about? He said, Sanford, I think about the same things you think about. You just think about them differently. I think about my mom and her health. I think about our safety. I think about being kidnapped. I think about what I have to do to survive, but differently. I said, yeah, nobody wants to kidnap me for anything. But those are the types of conversations we would have. They said, be careful of what you say, because I'm from Trenton, right? Somebody would say, for can I borrow $20? If I had it or not, I would say, no, nah, man, I don't have it. He would teach me. He said, do you know you're sending your subconscious mind a message that you shouldn't have it and you don't have it, and therefore tomorrow you won't have it. Find another way of answering that question. My grandmother used to say the same thing, but not quite that way because she's making a joke out of it. People would ask her for change. They call her Miss Granny. Miss Granny, you got some change. And she would say, Why can't you just accept things the way they are? You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> but she would never say she didn't have it. That was what I learned is that. I have it $20 or the $5 that you want to borrow. I don't have it for your purposes. I have it for something else. And that way you keep your subconscious mind guarded against the very negative things that you may not know you're sending to your subconscious mind. That's crazy thinking to somebody back in Trenton. They'd be like, man, you're crazy. But I learned those kinds of thought processes are incredibly important.
1: It's such an important message. It's like saying there's self-fulfilling prophecies. And if you believe this answer, it doesn't mean you can just think wealth, but it sounds like you were very intentional after these conversations with where you wanted to go. Can you think of examples where you actually put this into practice?
3: Yes. Me not giving up and going to the school that I want to go to. People say, oh, you'll never get in there. You don't know. That's a country club, blah, blah, blah. blah. I went there, I told them what my dreams and passions were, and I got there and I did it. I just kept going. I went to University of Southern California for my MBA. I was a presidential scholar down there. And I ended up going to Japan. They said, Oh, you'll never. I kept the work and the words true to what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. And I always told people, the universe can't take a joke. Oh, my back is killing me. Oh, my arm is killing me. I don't say those words. There is a story of a gentleman whose daughter was in a coma. He said, I give her an arm and a leg to have my daughter be relieved from this coma. A year or so later, he was in a car accident where he lost her arm and a leg and his daughter came out of the coma. So I'm very careful of words. Like if I ask you right now, don't think of chocolate ice cream. That's the first thing you think about. The universe doesn't pick up the nots or the don'ts. It picks up the word. You got some friends, you know, some girlfriends. What kind of man are you looking for? Girl, I don't want no drama. Drama is what you just mentioned. (laughs) That's what's on the way. So I always say I'm rich beyond reason. It may not be materially visible at this point, but it's there. And my life from Trenton to here is one of wealth beyond reason. How do you define wealth? With examples. So when I say I'm wealth beyond reason, think about your eyes. And think about somebody who takes your eyesight. How much would you pay to get it back? You give all the money you got. There's a guy, his name is Ed Zelensky. He's a wonderful gentleman of a man I served on the board of the San Francisco Maritime with, and he was passing away of cancer. And I got to meet him. He waited up for me that night. He passed a week or so later, but he waited up for me. He showed me his toy trains He showed me how he was the mayor of Sausalito at one point. He made all this money. He did all these great things. And I said, man, thank you for sharing all of that with me. Ed, what can I do for you? And he said, man, if you could switch places. I got a little more living I want to do. And though he had all the funds, all the money he could ever dream of, What he wanted was what he couldn't have at that particular point, and that was more of life. And he was telling me to be grateful for every day that I had. That's wealth. Wealth is life, and life is wonderful. You grew up
2: thinking that money equaled work, and then you had more life experience, you realized that money really equaled wealth and knowledge, and wealth is way more than just financial circumstances. Tell us about your life today and your relationship with money. How are you using these insights that you've gained across your life to impact your world and the world of those around you?
3: I feel that I'm so wonderfully blessed that I want to spend as much time sharing with others the opportunities that I have. So I didn't realize that I've been on several different podcasts and presentations this past month. I spoke with the FDIC about Black businesses and how to get funding and capital for them and the tricks and the things I've learned from running this organization that I have. I also spoke to a group of eighth graders in Buffalo, New York. So a couple of my friends from West are teachers And they said, we just would love for you to speak to these kids. I spoke to them on their terms. They were going crazy in that classroom. And it was really fun. I talked to them about the super friends. I told them about Aquaman And everyone in that classroom, you guys each wear a cape. And you can do things. You get to get together and solve the world's issues because you are the ones who can do it and who will do it. I just reminded them of all the issues and challenges in the world, but they're our future. And I just want to be a counsel to them. And so I spend my time joining organizations and being of service, given the fact that so many have been of service to me.
1: Tell us more about what you're doing today.
3: This organization that I run is called NorCal Financial Development Corp. And it actually helps small businesses get capital for growth. I don't actually do the lending, but what I do is so interesting. I do the guarantee. Say, for instance, your company, you have a contract and you don't get paid for 60, 90 days. You need working capital. In the meantime, we can do a line of credit, but the bank will say, well, you haven't been in business long enough. You haven't done this. What we do is we offer synthetic collateral. So say you're borrowing a hundred thousand, we'll guarantee 80. If anything goes wrong, we'll guarantee 80,000. Therefore, the lending institution will make that loan. And guess what? Most folks pay it back. So we only have a 2% default rate for the whole program and NorCal has a 0.5. It's really a stereotypical icebreaker. You don't think folks can pay because they haven't been around long, but they do.
1: I really appreciate that what you're doing is helping these businesses get out of survival mode and get to that dreaming, thriving mode.
3: That's right. You're wearing your cape. Thank you. And it's amazing. And this company was teetering on the brink of disaster about five years ago. And that's when I became the CEO. And I took all that knowledge from ABC, all that knowledge from Wesleyan, all that knowledge from the USC, all that knowledge from Trenton, coupled with Amherst. We've gone from just a couple of hundred thousand dollars in revenue to over a couple of million. Using that and those relationships and conversations like this we continue to grow even in the pandemic. We had the same people that was working here then, working here now, and we have the same number of people. So I didn't have to go out and find some superheroes. I have superheroes right here.
2: Will you tell us about your family today and how you're talking about money with your
3: family? I got divorced a while back, but we still raised our three kids. Well, my sister got sick. My sister was born with spinal bifida, so she passed in 2011. But even in '03, I had to bring her three sons in with me. And right now, those three, my three, we have six. My mother has six grandkids, of which I was responsible for making sure they're okay. And every week we have a call. With the knowledge that I have, I've always been an investor, had great fun. And share builder was a time when we can have shares and you can buy partial shares. So all that stuff we did early. So my kids have been investing early and I bought them some of these one stocks. And so they own Pixar before it got sold to Disney and they owned Marvel before it got sold to Disney. And so they have a little bit of knowledge of things that they like that they invest in. And so we have a call and we get on that call and we share ideas around investing and we share ideas around wealth building. Everybody has their own account. Everybody is building. And we also are looking towards a compound. We want a place where we can go and have fun and ride horses and do our thing. So not Trenton, New Jersey, I don't think. No, not, not Trenton. But you know, there's an equestrian place right up here off the of skyline, up here in Oakland. They've done their research and they've looked around and found some places and things that they like to do. I appreciate that. And then also what we do is always look at where we can give help. And so right now we we put together some funds for families in Ukraine or families in Iran because people only realize, and I'll tell you real quick, We talk about inflation and stuff like that. We don't realize back in 78, when they had their revolution in Iran, 10 to 1 was a dollar, the exchange. You know what it is today? It's 20,000 to 1. People can't eat. There's a lot of things that don't get talked about around the world. Our family talks about because we know by the grace of God, we walk and we always want to make somebody else's step a little bit easier.
2: Will you tell us a little bit more about these weekly meetings? Who's in charge? Who sets the agenda? Are you talking about expectations?
3: I started off with the one that was doing it because I helped put it together. But then I have a daughter who works for a major bank in New York. She graduated from Williams last year. And so she's pulling all the tricks out of the bag and sharing them with us. And then my son, he's an anime kind of guy. So he's an artist. He recognized a couple of stocks like Levi, where they had this ability to do three-dimensional work and stuff like that. You could put on a pair of pants after you were scanned. And he's like, I think that's going to do it. I think it's going to do it. And so he ended up buying it really low. And now it's probably triple what it was. And so everyone brings their story like that. And then we do our research and we have somebody who keeps track of all of the ideas in a grid with an Excel grid. And so the pandemic has been really good because it's allowed us to use Zoom like what we're doing right now. We set goals And we say, look, we want to have 15, 20% return as a group. And then here is what we want to do. And we've doubled that. So it's been really good. We're probably 24 months out of having a down payment on land.
2: Everyone's investing together in a pot. And then you're using that investment pot to buy the land.
3: What we're doing is we have Cash App, we have Stash We have Acorn, Robinhood. These are the online tools that we use to govern our investments. And so everybody governs their own investment. And then we tell each other how much we have. You know, I got 20,000, you got 30,000, you got 10,000, whatever. And then we set this number of like 110,000 for the purchase of the land and down payment. And then we create an LLC to do that part. These
1: weekly conversations are inspirational for all of us as we encourage people to have money conversations. You really have shown this commitment and what it's created as a result for your family and the learning must be tremendous.
3: Well, it's much like this call right now. It's the virtual dinner table. Remember how we used to have that every day, but now we just do it once a week. But it's the virtual dinner table where we can get to talk to each other. My daughter, she's in New York. I got one over in San Francisco. I'm traveling all over. And sometimes we invite friends to come and they come and go, but it's the family. we just keep it really tight. And we're actually planning a reunion in Myrtle Beach in July. My family's pretty big. My father was one of 15. My grandfather was one of 23 and all this crazy stuff. There's a lot of cousins down there. We have a book called the Livingston Journal and we're all in it. And We talk about it and we don't just want to be in it. We want to be of it. We want to talk about the legacy of the descendants of which we come and how they worked hard. They were once slaves. And here we are now going to the finest universities, buying land and having incredible businesses and making our way through life. It's because of them that we exist. So that's what we do.
1: As we wrap up our conversation today What is your next money conversation going to be, and who is it going to be with?
3: I would love to have another call with some other kids that are a little down on their luck and not understanding that they are a manifestation of God. I'm thankful that divinity thought and breathed life into me. And it's for me to let others know that exists for them. And so I would really love to speak with some more classes about. Where they can go and what they can do. That last class is really interested in NFTs. I barely know what it is, but there's a girl, 14 years old. She's sold $4 million worth of art in NFTs. 14. And I'm saying this generation is doing things well beyond what we did. I want to be a part of passing the word along. I would like to be like you two young women who are passing along a gift of money tales to folks who may not have heard these stories before. Wow.
1: Thank you, Sanford. And we really appreciate you sharing so much of yourself in this conversation and inspiring us. I appreciated this definition of what wealth is, and it's unfortunate we have to be on death's door sometimes to have this appreciation for wealth is life.
3: Keep doing what you're doing on Money Tales because you're really expediting the message, pushing it out to folks that need to hear it. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Sanford. Hey, Sandy, what a wonderful
2: conversation with Sanford. He's such a special person. I really enjoyed speaking with him.
1: So much to learn. This was our 75th episode of Money Tales.
2: Happy anniversary, Cammie.
1: (laughs) You too, Sandy. Listeners, thank you for joining us in this amazing journey and for having your own personal money conversations and learning along the way.
2: When we started this podcast, our plan was to have nine episodes, call it a season and see how it went. But pretty quickly, Cammy and I got hooked and we were having so much fun with these meaningful conversations. I can't believe we're already at number 75.
1: Mm, it's fantastic. And as we promised at the start of the show, we wanted to share with our listeners a few tips to help you have more money conversations. Sandy, do you want to kick us off?
2: The first tip for getting the money conversation started is one that we use oftentimes on Money Tales, which is asking the person you're speaking to about how money was handled during their childhood. So much of the perspectives and attitudes we have about money is ingrained in our childhood experiences. So this is a really easy way to get the conversation started. You could start off by asking, how did your parents talk to you about money? Ask, were you a saver or a spender when you were growing up? Or tell me about your first big purchase. There's so many different questions that you could ask to get the conversation started. This is a nice, easy way to learn about the person you're speaking to and also have an opportunity to share about your own childhood money experiences and explore that.
1: One of my favorite questions is, when did money first have meaning to you as a kid?
2: That's a great one.
1: I wanted to be able to buy candy.
2: <laughs> For me, it was lip gloss. There you go. I think it did have a candy flavor to it. Cami, what's our second tip?
1: Second tip is to compare money metaphors. So a way to bring to life how you relate with money or make it fun is asking metaphorical questions and then requesting the person to explain their reasoning.
2: Let's try this out.
1: All right, Sandy, if money were a food, what food would it be for you and why?
2: I'm going to go with a hot fudge Sunday because for me, money is a reward for working hard and for accomplishing the things that I want to accomplish, much like a hot fudge Sunday is a reward on a special occasion to enjoy dessert after a fine meal. Let's try another one. If money were an animal, which one would it be for you and why?
1: I would say money would be an octopus.
2: That's a lot of wallets.
1: (laughs) I learned that an octopus can grow back a tentacle if it gets chopped off. Now, must not be nice when they lose it. Just like I don't like losing money. Sometimes I don't spend it very easily. But the idea that you can grow a pack and that you can learn from efforts you make made me think of this octopus with all these arms. also makes me think about, some of our guests talk about saving money in the different envelopes. So I can think of the different arms of the octopus being these different envelopes. So we're really intentional about what we're saving for and what we want to use that money for.
2: I like these metaphors. It's a fun way to talk about money. It's playful. It invites fun and curiosity and isn't judgmental or uncomfortable.
1: Really important. So is that the third hot tip?
2: Absolutely. Approach these conversations with curiosity. Curiosity will lead you into some natural questions to start a money conversation. You could say, I was listening to this great podcast and it got me thinking about money. Hey friend, what are your thoughts? Or you can refer to a newspaper article you read or a magazine article or something you saw on social media, whatever the case, giving a little bit of reference to set some context for starting the conversation can be extremely helpful. Listeners, you might have some conversation starters of your own. And if you do, please reach out to us at podcasts at aspirient.com. We'd love to hear how you're starting your money conversations and what you're talking about. And if you have a guest idea, write us about that too.
0: You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to aspirantcom slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.